Aloha. Welcome to the Prosperos. This is our service center. It's great to see all of you. Some of you are new to me. The Prosperos was founded in 1956. We're a school of ontology. We were founded to address the unique needs that each person who's interested in expanding their consciousness has. Each one of us has a unique avenue to develop. We teach people how to think, we teach people how to learn. We don't teach what to think or what to learn. That's a unique kind of difference. And we have fun. We believe in fun and celebration and high color, pizzazz. We believe to be spiritual is to be spirited. We love to laugh. It's not easy laughing at yourself, and a Capricorn is one that can stand up here and tell you about that. <laughs> it's essential, though. Um, the teachings that we learn about tell us it's imperative to take our work seriously, but it's deadly to take ourselves seriously. So we're here today. Now, some of you are here for the first time, and uh, you're wondering where you are. Uh, that's good. As long as you have a question, there's hope in the world. Uh, we're not going to play 20 questions today, though. Now, I don't want to draw attention to the weather and the heat and all this kind of stuff, so I'm going to refrain from um, describing our speaker as uh, a hot number or a real live wire, or as I did last year, I think I introduced him as our uh, imported... Fourth of July firecracker. We all know that's true, but today I'm not going to use that. I'm merely going to say that uh, we're going to have a real cool dude come up here and shoot off some sparks, maybe ignite a few ideas, and possibly enlighten the various crevices in the gray matter. I welcome you to Thane of Hawaii. I'd just like to say a few words before I call in the Israeli Air Force. <laughs> Aloha. Aloha. Many of you uh, today probably be here because you probably feel that you're going to hear an exposition about the various syndicate, uh, seminars that uh, we teach in the Prosperos and our varied interests, and that really isn't what we're going to do. We're going to talk about the 4th of July and what it should mean. In fact, I think the subject is independence from what? And I think that needs to be very personally understood by a great number of people. But we all know, of course, that uh, July the 4th is uh, when all Americans celebrate the signing of the Declaration of Independence. It was a one-page document, and what it said, in effect, was, we're in control here. Now, that was uh, July the 2nd, and because they didn't have Xerox in those days, it didn't get produced until July the 4th <laughs> in 1776. 
And this shows you how times have changed. A group of men that were wearing wigs, ruffle shirts, silk stockings, tight pants. And they met in Philadelphia and called it Independence Day. In San Francisco, they call it Saturday night. <laughs> <laughs> I don't know. But that was the style of those days, you know, powdered hair. Everybody looked like a cross between Lee Marvin and Mount St. Helen. <laughs> Incidentally, I just saw Mount St. Helens two or three days, three or four days ago. Sort of flew close enough and it's still steaming, it's still there. Anyway, those were memorable days in our uh, history, history of our nation. And there was Nathan Hale who said, I regret that I have one, but one life to give for my country. And Patrick Henry said, give me liberty or give me death. And John Hancock said, have I got a policy for you? <laughs> So July the 4th is a special day, day to, for shooting things off like firecrackers, fireworks, skyrockets, shooting off at the mouth and a few other things like that. And so that's what we're here for. I hope it will be of interest to you. Uh, oh, I might say that uh, we do have a lot of problems in this country. and. Uh, I'm told that there are two ways or two things that will solve our problems, religion and booze. Not separately, though. You have to be religious about your drinking. That's it. The last day, the last of the great revolutionary figures were Thomas Jefferson and John Adams. And there's a very interesting uh, parallel here. On the 50th anniversary of the Declaration of Independence, the 50th anniversary, within five hours of each other, the last two of the signers died. They died within five hours of each other. That's Jefferson and uh, Adams, John Adams, not John Quincy, that's a son. Don't get, don't get them mixed up. And it is reported that as they were dying, that Adam said Thomas, Thomas Jefferson still survives. And that turned out to be his most famous words. Uh, the national imagination then quickly turned this coincidence of their dying within five hours of each other into a mystique of faith. And in an, uh, an official proclamation by John Quincy Adams, that's the son of John Adams, he wrote, the finger of providence is plainly visible. It hallows the Declaration of Independence as the word of God, the sign of divine approval for this course of freedom. But both of the Adams, father and son, recognized that the 4th of July was peculiarly Jefferson's day and that the older Adams had foreseen that he would never share in the 
hypothesis or the glorification of his old friend and rival uh, was to be accorded. And if you're in uh, Washington, D.C., or if you have been there, it's a good idea to go see uh, the Jefferson Memorial. Uh, it, it's a fantastic situation, day or night. I remember one time uh, quite a few years ago that I was visiting in uh, uh, Washington, D.C. with some friends, and there was a young man traveling with me who had gone east for an uh, international drug uh, uh, seminar from people from all over the world. And each group could bring one, two, or three uh, such people uh, according to the size of the group. We were allowed to bring one. And uh, it was a conference that lasted for three days. It was very, very much in depth. And uh, following uh, being in New York, we went down to Washington, D.C. And I was a guest uh, in the home of two long, long time friends of mine. And just as we were about to eat dinner, uh, late, about eight o'clock or so, they learned that this young friend uh, had not uh, been to Washington before. And it was a beautiful moonlight night, and of course the various historic uh, statues and things like that were illumined anyway. Uh, I don't know if you all re ever knew this, but uh, never been there. The, the great statue of Washington, uh, the President Washington seated in his chair with a sort of a toga over his shoulder, and uh, he's nude from the waist up. And there were people that did not want that statue put there. They said, send it back to Greece where they have the statues of all the naked men and leave it there. <laughs> so that was the attitude at that time about nude from the waist up. <laughs> so we went out to go visit these various uh, memorials. And we, the last one we came to was the uh, Thomas Jefferson one, which is approached by an enormous uh, flight of stairs and it sits up there in great majesty and in the moonlight and the light it was a wonderful sight to see and the last of the people that were there apparently were coming down as this young man went up most of you know it most of you know who I'm talking about and we waited down below because we had both uh, three of us had seen it many times and we waited and waited and waited and waited for the young man to come back. Finally, we thought we'd better go see. So we climbed up and we watched this young man. He would read one of these great panels that are done in bronze and then he'd go around and read another to go all the way around this building. And he was just absolutely hypnotized almost by the words of Jefferson. We finally then got back to the townhouse where we were guests and we started to have uh, the meal that uh, had been prepared and the young man about midway said, excuse me, and he departed and he didn't come back as soon as we rather anticipated and then we could hear the toilet flushing. So uh, one of my friend Max Davis said, maybe he's ill. Maybe 
something he ate or something, maybe better go see. So I went into the suite that had been set aside for us, and sure enough, he was kneeling in front of the John, and he'd plush it every so often. So I thought, well, he was ill. Finally, though, I went over to him and I said, is there something I can do for you? No, no. What are you doing? He says, I'm throwing away every bit of dope I have with me. I'll never touch it again. And I said, why? And he said, haven't you been up in that memorial and read those panels? So there was healing in it. John Adams was certain that the 2nd of July would be celebrated by, and I quote, by succeeding generations of the great anniversary festival. He wrote this to his wife, Abigail, on July the 3rd, 1776. And that was the day after the Continental Congress had voted for independence from Great Britain. He further wrote, it ought to be commemorated as the day of deliverance by solemn acts of devotion to God Almighty. It ought to be solemnized with pomp and parade, with shows, with games, with sports, with guns, with bells, bonfires, and illumination from one end of the continent to the other from this time forward forevermore. In other words, uh, America's independence has been indeed observed with such festivities. But as I say, Adams was wrong about the day. The decoration, which was widely distributed then, was, of course, dated July the 4th. Now, the first celebration was one of music, broadside discharges of cannons, the captured Hessian band that was taken in uh, Trenton on December the 26th by Washington's forces, attended and they heightened the festivities by all sorts of performances musically that were appropriate to the joyous occasion. And at the end of the day, Adams wrote, thus may the 4th of July, that glorious and ever memorable day, be celebrated throughout America by sons of freedom from age to age until it shall be no more. Amen and amen. Now, one of the most perceptive of the great French writers at that time raised the question, what then is this new man? Those people who had, for one reason or another, uh, left their families, left their homes, left their countries to come to this unpopulated, almost virgin wilderness to set up a new concept of man. Now, many people are baffled by the uh, meaning of the American experience. Arthur Schlesinger, Jr. suggests that there are two themes that seem to be counterpoints uh, since that time in English-speaking white men first began the invasion of America. Both themes have been dealt with in the American mind, and the two themes will continue, probably continue for the life of the nation. And Schlesinger calls them one traditional and the other counter-traditional. And he suggests that tradition sprang initially from historic Christianity as it was mediated by St. Augustine and by Calvin. And 
you can't get much further apart between St. Augustine and Calvin. Uh, in fact, in a uh, little paragraph that I picked out several years ago uh, out of the Christian Herald, 76, I'll just quote it. Pointedly, the nation's early builders considered religion as the roots and ramparts of the virtue among the peoples and in government, even though acting to sever the official ties between church and state. Religion, although disestablished and put on a voluntary, uncontrolled, uncontrolled basis, that is, uncontrolled by the nation, supporters had to be directly responsible for it. And this was yet perceived as a prime buttress to moral standards. The Northwest Ordinance, which was to govern territories west of the Alleghenies, that was passed by Congress in 1787, the same year that the U.S. Constitution was drafted, declared that religion, morality, and knowledge are necessary to good government. They will uh, be considered as essentials to guarantee self-rule. Now, the Calvin ethos was permeated with convictions of the depravity of man, of the awful precariousness of human existence, and vanity of mortals, the judgment of a pitiless the pitiless and wrathful deity. Now, this suffused all of New England. In a book called Old Town by Harriet Beecher Stowe, she recalls the atmosphere of New England. The underlying foundation of life in England is one of profound, unalterable, and therefore unuttered melancholy, which regarded human existence itself as a ghastly risk and in the case of the vast majority of human beings, they, human beings, were an inconceivable misfortune. Does this begin to sound a little familiar to some of you? In what's happening today? If it doesn't, then you better catch up on your reading. Because groups of this sort are on the hit list. There is a hit list, and don't let anybody tell you there isn't, because there is. Carl Sagan is at the top for his cosmos. I'm on the hit list. Prosperos is on the hit list. Christian science is on the hit list. Religious science, divine science, it's on the hit list. What I know about the kahunaism in Hawaii and what your father knows so very well is on the hit list. It's published. It's been published in the Honolulu Advertiser from an Associated Press uh, release. Now there's a side trip here we might take. Uh, approximately 270, 84 years prior to New England, the beginning of what uh, we've sort of gone through here during the 60s and somewhat during the 70s. But in New England, it was, the whole situation was seething with tremendous witch hunting. And a great number of young people were 
who accused their elders of witchcraft because of what they were feeling. The Salem girls that you may have read about who experienced hallucinations, vertigo, <laughs> headaches, crawling sensations on the skin, painful muscular contractions, climaxing and, uh, and vomiting, diarrhea and convulsions. That was one of the biggest issues of all time in New England at that time. Now we have somewhat the same thing. <laughs> a great many people who've been through uh, uh, LSD trips and have used various kinds of hard drugs fit into that. And the only real difference is that this time around, the parents are accusing the youth <laughs> instead of the youth accusing the parents. Now, all of this, to those of you that are interested in astrology, has a great deal to do with the transit of Neptune in Sagittarius and the recently finished transit of Uranus in Scorpio and with Uranus catching up with Neptune in the next few years in a conjunction. Now, whether that means anything to you, at the, as far as astrology is concerned, it isn't really very important. But what it does mean that if you are aware of what's going on today in what is called the uh, moral majority, watch out. During the next seven years, you ain't seen nothing yet. You just have seen nothing yet as far as what's ahead. But the terrible sense of the human condition in New England and a great deal of the rest of the territories uh, eventually called colonies was a sense of everyone in an unending and implacable process of being tested. A chief justice of the Supreme Court at that time who condemned the Salem witches wrote we must look upon ourselves as under a solemn divine probation. It hath been and it is a probation time even to this whole trip of people. Now by the time the revolutionaries got down to Philadelphia in 1776, the uh, fires, the flames of uh, Calvinism were beginning to simmer down. Uh, hell was not quite such a frightening word because it became just a cuss word or more or less. But for the fathers of the Republic, as far as the fathers of the church too, the decline and fall of Rome remained the example for which they thought to learn the most humane possibilities or to find out what they could avoid. And the fragility of human striving was the conclusion on the part of the Calvinists, the Augustinians, and the founding fathers. And the founding fathers, so it is recorded, ransacked the class classical historians for ways to escape this classical fate that this great adventure must go as Rome down. How that could this great adventure of the independence in America, how could that be avoided? But the classical indoctrination reinforced the Calvinist judgment that this was a probation time for America and also a probation time for all Americans. For at that time, the history of antiqu antiquity did not teach 
the inevitability of progress. We know now that we didn't then, and we've only begun to know it since 1900, the inevitability of progress, and that's why the last time I spoke to you here three or four weeks ago, I told you that the great unrest of today and the falling apart is inevitably uh, decay that must take place, but all decay is fertilizer. All decay is fertilizer. So in this falling apart period now, we can all rest well assured it may be tough, but we can all rest well assured that the inevitability of progress is one of nature's greatest, strongest drives. It's a part of survival dynamic, and we will see then that the subversion by power and luxury and the transience of glory will fade away for an entirely new concept of independence. In fact, Marilyn Ferguson says that we need to have a new declaration of independence, which is really what I want to get to here in a few minutes. So consequently, the founding fathers had an intense conviction of the improbability of their undertaking. They thought it wouldn't survive. They thought, they feared it wouldn't survive. They feared it would go down the drain. However, they did not believe that divine intercession was going to help them either, that they were on a testing period and that their test was to find what the disposition, disposition of human nature might be. And John Adams wrote about the republic's future. He said, commerce, luxury, and avarice have destroyed every republican government. And Jefferson said in 1780 that when he reflected that God is just, when he thought it over that God is just, he said it made him quake in his boots. And those of you who go by the old idea of a just God, Maybe some of you got uh, religion like I did as a kid. Really got it. And I went up to this altar call. And outside of being in prison in Germany quite a few years later, I have never been in such a state of fear as I was when I went up to be saved. <laughs> I could never describe the horror, the insensitivity, the entire sense of depravity, not only of myself, but all the rest of us poor victims being herded up there. It was one of those great long-run uh, uh, you know, revival meetings. They even got around to the point that they would tie the kids together with ropes and take them up there. And by God, you had to be baptized, you're gonna get saved, and that was immersed. And my poor little cousins were Methodists that they don't even sprinkle. <laughs> now, to say that I suffered over that is a mild statement. I've cried myself to sleep over and over again about my little cousins. Anyway, we finally got together. I think I told you this one. We finally got together and thought, well, at least we would immerse our uh, animals, our pets. So we got their puppies and dogs and so forth, and even little kittens, and we immersed them. We dug a hole in the yard. We immersed them, and then we got Mama Cat, and she put up a fight. 
And one of my little cousins, who uh, Ann Bowman's mother knows, one of my little cousins said, well, uh, to, about the cat, let's just sprinkle her like the Methodist and let her go to hell. <laughs> well, we believed that we were if we weren't immersed. So the founding fathers were highly sensitive to the proposition that this whole proposition of independence, the proposition of America was a mistake. And you find it in all the literature of those days. The pervasive self-doubt of the concept of the precariousness of that little national existence uh, was very apparent to all of them. Uh, it was also nourished by European writers. Uh, Locke, he wrote, in the beginning all the world was America, but wrote of America as a disgusting scene of degeneracy and impotence. Then, and the 60s hadn't gotten here yet. <laughs> the moral majority really got some stuff to get their teeth into. Well, it's time when they said that America poured all of its sources of corruption into Europe after we had established the uh, little Declaration of Independence. Uh, one writer said that the search for American riches brutalized the European intruder. The climate and soil of America caused the European species, human as well as animal, to deteriorate. Word for word, the men have less strength and less courage than Europeans. <laughs> and are but little susceptible to the lively and powerful sentiment of love. So I want to uh, sort of sum up here the counter tradition as counter to Calvinism. The founding fathers saw the American Republic not as a consecration, but as a test against history based on the rise and fall of Rome. And we have people in high places today that still seem to be keeping that idea going on. If we do not join their particular religious belief, uh, if we do not, then we're going to deteriorate, fall apart. Abraham Lincoln said that most of the first half of a century of America was an undecided experiment. Then he went on to say, now it is a successful one. But you must realize that he, Lincoln, seemed to have a conviction of the uncertainty. Of, he said, uh, fourscore uh, years ago, we're going to see if the idea can prevail. He asked, if the inherent and failure weaknesses could be survived. And he wondered that the idea of all men equal could long endure. It was a question. That was the dominant theme then of the first great republic, an experiment taken in, undertaken in defiance of history. It was fraught with 
risk, problematic in outcome, and it was to be followed, of course, by the war between the southern states and the northern states. We finally did survive it. But a counter-tradition was also emerging, and it was of a different sort of thing. In other words, uh, all people were not just immediately under God's uh, little uh, computer system up there to see where you went awry. Calvin wrote that God chose the Jews as his very own flock, and then he wrote that the Jewish dispensation was broken down to make way for a more extensive success for the gospel of the New, New, New Testament, and that therefore the chosen people were the elect as against the reprobates. The New England Calvinists felt that they had been called from hearth and from home to endure unimaginable ordeals, unimaginable rigor, in this very, very dangerous land. So they supposed that someone of importance had called them and for important reasons and that you had to suffer. God hath covenanted with his people that sanctified affliction shall be their portion. Without doubt, the Lord Jesus hath a peculiar respect for this place and for this people. And it was because they felt that they were being tested that they had the guts to stay with it. And the Latter-day Saints were sustained by the same concept as they moved westward. The Reverend Timothy Dwight called Americans the chosen race. And Harriet Beecher Stowe wrote, God's mercy to New England, the glorious future of the United States, New England commissioned to bear the light of liberty and religion throughout all of the earth and to bring in the great millennial day when wars should cease and the whole world be, be released from the thraldom of evil, should rejoice in the light of the Lord. And Herman Melville wrote, We Americans are the peculiar chosen people. We are the Israelites of our time. We bear the ark of the liberties of the world. Long enough have, have we been skeptics with regards to ourselves and doubted whether indeed the political Messiah has come. But, he says, the political Messiah in spirit has come. So the belief that the Americans were the chosen people did not uh, imply in the least a sure and tranquil journey to salvation. The Bible has made amply clear chosen people undergo the harshest trials and assume the most grievous burden. Now, whether this is your belief or not, or whatever, uh, that's up to you. I'm telling you what was the sense of things at that time. And we're having a replay of it today. We're having a replay. The counter-arrival proposition was America as an experiment, America as an experiment, America as a destiny. But in this, the counter-idea shared the belief in the process of testing. One tested by uh, logic and the other tested by faith. So the impression developed that in the United States of America, the Almighty had contrived a nation unique in its virtue and magnanimity, exempt from the motives that governed all the rest of the national states in the world. But as time passed, and particularly during the time of, some of you can easily remember, John Foster Dulles, who was a Presbyterian elder, 
he changed the idea and then we got around to saying that uh, Vietnam had to be our responsibility. And now we have a president. They may not believe that nations like presidents may be born again, but nevertheless, we're on the way for a few years of extreme perception need, being needed on the part of everybody. So the great question, why did the conviction of the corruptibility of men the conviction of the vulnerability of men and of nations and the consequent idea of America as an experiment give way to the myth of innocence and the disillusion of a sacred nature that uh, we finally did get some idea about. John F. Kennedy argued the anti-Messianic case. He said, we must face the fact that the United States is neither omnipotent nor omniscient that we are only 6% of the world's population, that we cannot impose our will upon 94% of mankind, that we cannot right every wrong or reverse every adversity, and that therefore there cannot be an American solution to every world problem. And his final annual message, he said, before my term has ended, we shall all have tested anew whether a nation organized and governed as such as ours can endure. The outcome is by no means certain. This is where we are today. So the repeated mood of the founding fathers, which is that those who are in office have national righteousness and that they are there by God's providential uh, hand lift that still remains strong today. And I tell you, it is dangerous. Probably then we have to study history better than we have. I do remember that the elder Henry Ford once said that history is bunk and uh, that no longer do young people study history. But intellectually, while we have many, many young people that turn their backs on history and uh, have uh, enthusiasm for a historical uh, kind of thing, which I mean dealing with whatever's up front now, is possibly quite a problem. But we must remember that uh, the Prosperous is a futurist organization, and we can only relate to the future by studying history and rewriting our history. Now you get into the new scientific things where they see that you can. Uh, even rewrite your own genes and the new uh, uh, things that they're doing now uh, with lasers and various other things to make, make uh, even uh, a child that's going to be born a monster do it over before it's born. We're on the verge of making a new man. And our Prospero's idea is a new man that we call Homo Novus. So independence from what? We must learn to become independent from the long, long history of Homo sapiens. We've run our course. We must leave earthbound ideas. Many people will go out into space. In another 25, 50 years, something like that, there will be islands of anywhere from 15,000 to 40,000 people living out in space. 
And this requires an entirely different viewpoint than gravity-bound, earth-bound man. And that is why I feel that the Prosperos is very uh, important. <laughs> I'll get my commercial in either one way or the other. So, it is only in the concept of the schools of thought, such as several I have mentioned here already, that we can, by understanding the fundamental fundamental idea of omnipotent, omnipresent, omniscient beingness, consciousness, not an anthropomorphic god that's fixed up some nice barbecue pits to have you tossed in when the time comes and all that sort of thing. It is only when the concept of such schools that keep in progressive effort eliminating the dichotomy of the two counter ideas in the, and eliminating it in the heart and bosom of every man that we can hope to intelligently think of the future. Each person has the right to become an individual. Wordsworth wrote, these two things, as contradictory as they seem, must go together, mainly man, manly, manly independence and manly independence meaning manly reliance on the manly self-reliance. And I think one of the best ways to uh, uh, finish what I have to say to you is to be found in the words of Dwight D. Eisenhower. The individual must be free, able to develop the utmost of his ability, employ all his opportunities that confront him for his own and his family's welfare, Otherwise, he is merely a cog in a machine. The society must be stable, assured against violent upheaval and revolution. Otherwise, it is nothing but a temporary truce with chaos. But freedom for the individual must never degenerate into the brutish struggle for survival that we call barbarism. Neither must the stability of society ever degenerate into the enchained servitude of the masses that we call statism. I believe the only way that we can uh, counteract this uh, frightening situation that I've mentioned two or three times here, and don't need to mention again, is to more and more pursue studies such as the Prosperos relate to. It is there that man comes to know himself. And as Joseph Wood Crouch once wrote, a man that does not know himself does not know anyone else. So that is our challenge. And it is only in that way that we will ever get to the place of understanding love. You have to learn how to love something inside man rather than his everyday behavior. <laughs>